All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast, uh, episode 100. Yeah, we've done this a hundred times. We've been doing this for quite a while. Oh, those heady days before censorship reared its ugly head in full. Um, but today, Jason and I are going to cover education and school, how it came to be in this country, where it came from, things like this. But before we jump in, logic and rhetoric used to be the chief concerns of a beginning education. Uh, back in the day when they taught a thing called the trivium, logic and rhetoric were part of these things. To this day, if you look at some of the Eastern religious-based societies, logic and rhetoric are still taught as a basic foundation to all other learning that happens at a young age. Logic and rhetoric are all but missing from the modern curriculum, and when you set aside logic alone, you end up producing people who have a hard time challenging things that need challenging. I was fortunate in my life because I had a father who taught me how to challenge. When I was young, he would regularly say things to me with a completely straight face that I should not accept, but I had no clue um, looking at a straight face, and the things he was telling me often seemed plausible. Over time, I came to understand that I had to challenge these things and work out for myself logically whether I should accept them or not. And over time, what he did there taught me a hell of a lot about how to live as an adult. In the modern age, when people go to school in the Western world, for the most part, learning like systems, how systems work, and how logic can be applied to any given situation in life, and how rhetoric is used, are nearly absent from most curriculums, certainly in all lower education. And there's a reason for this. Um, logic is a critical, critical thing. Jason and I are going to address these things as we break down how the Western world inherited its education system, where it came from, and the very documents that outlined the reason for these systems being formed originally in Prussia. So there it is. Let's jump into episode 100, Woohoo, with Jason Lindgren. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 100. Believe it or not, we've done this a hundred times now. Um, we're going to be covering education. Um, it's actually quite a thing when you begin to look into it. I think most people with children are already aware of many of the things that we will cover here. Uh, Jason Lingroom is with me, and welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So how's it down there, man? Up here, it's uh, supposedly spring, but we're getting snow again. Supposedly spring, but it cooled back off again, even down here. Yeah, we'll see. Um, that's part of what we'll talk about in the intro here. Uh, but first things first, I'll talk about the shows that I did. Uh, there's a YouTube channel called Truth Sentinel 2. Uh, the 2 is numeric, so write out Truth Sentinel, add the number 2. Uh, the guy's name is Scott that runs that channel. It's a really good episode, actually. Um, he doesn't get a lot of traffic yet, so maybe that will survive. I was worried that was one that might get pulled down. Also, Sage of Quay had me back on. We pre-recorded a day or two ago. Um, I'll post that and add it to the intro when it goes live. That was also a very good interview. Uh, always nice to do an interview with someone in my age group. Um, what do you got, Jason? So our friend Matt Lamon's going to be coming on to talk about this either next week or the following week, but he has the third annual Global Summit to Stop Geoengineering coming up at the Gallagher Theater on Saturday, May 12th, 2018, of course. So if anyone's interested in that or wants more information, go ahead and check that out. Matt Lamon, man, he's like the hardest working man in activism, isn't he? Oh, he's killer, man. When I went to that conference two weeks ago, I guess, 
he he did a 30 minute presentation and the intensity of his energy in person is just amazing the guy's on it yeah he uh he never quits does he but uh let's see what else do we have here oh yes on the tale of the equinox episode um the forum over at crow triple seven radio blew up um and just so people know right now all forums are closed i'm doing some uh Let's just say construction and upgrades, but they will open within the next day or two. But anyhow, uh, we got a massive thread going where people were checking times and dates and mapping true equinoxes around the world, showing that the picked day for equinox is pretty much nonsense. And lo and behold, a day or two ago, the Naval Observatory, which was the most accurate source for sunrise and sunset data, was closed. Um, and I posted the image they had put up on my uh, Twitter account so people could see it. It was a bit stunning. Since then, it has come back up. Uh, we're a little concerned the algorithm or whatever drives the data there may have changed, but we'll be looking into that. Also, for episode 100, um, the audio quality will now go up. As many people know, Jason is an audio engineer. Uh, I am handing full editing over to Jason, which will improve the quality of things. Also, there will be a larger episode image, new and improved, and yeah, there's all that. So what else do we got, Jason? Principal photography for the film started this past weekend. I went to visit Randy from Houston and shot his interview, so that is underway. Yeah, everybody loves Randy from Houston. And by the way, I should also add, you know, I had a strike and a video removed, and the other day I was going to go... Um, fight it and lo and behold the video was back ads had been removed and that was a clip that Randy you know that I did with Randy back in the day and it is the most innocuous um, conversation I mean we did talk about some Dallas event back in the day but other than that so do we have anything or should we jump right in here the last thing I want to mention is that while doing research for this episode I'm finding that it's even worse than I've dealt with in the past. The, right. the nonsense that is coming up when I'm looking for certain things, particularly using the Google search engine, it's just to the point of ridiculousness. I really seriously think they're just trying to bury real information with nonsense. Just return after return after return that I have to sift through just trying to get anything decent. It's a thing, folks. It really is. There's no doubt, Jason. Um, I've noticed it for a long time, and it, it almost feels like every week we go to do research, it gets more and more difficult to the point where I am literally stacking books up again, which doesn't bother me, man. Books are an important thing, and they can't be edited, so I have no problem with collecting books. Um, but to put a fine point on it, I had a user in hope I get this right. I think it was Norway. Maybe it was Sweden. I forget which. Who did a search for Crow 777 Radio on Google one day. Got 7,700 returns, I think. And then the next day, 60,000. This has gone on. And to refresh people's memory, before YouTube took out my channel, there were millions of returns on Crow 777. The day after it came back, there were 6,000. You can see what's going on here. Um, it is information control at the highest levels, and every time we sit down to do research, it's it's literally hard work now um, to get to things that matter. Um, as we sat down, since we're doing education, I was talking to Jason before we uh, jumped into the episode here about the quadrivium and the trivium, which were older curriculums for young people that actually reflected real information based in nature about our world, and the top search return were like rap albums and stuff. And you had to dig through to get to this nonsense, and then lo and behold, when you finally get through it, the top thing, of course, is Wikipedia. And I think most people know how I feel about 
Wikipedia in general. But anyhow, Jason, you ready to jump in here? I sure am. All right, here we go, man. Episode 100. Uh, It's been a long, strange trip here, Jason. Go ahead. It's all you. Before I get into the history of education, I want to read a little passage from the book Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. Diversion Summary. Under media, keep the adult public attention diverted away from the real social issues and captivated by matters of no real importance. Schools. Keep the young public ignorant of real mathematics, real economics, real law, and real history. Entertainment. Keep the public entertainment below a sixth grade level. And work. Keep the public busy, 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 with no time to think. Back on the farm with the other animals. Now, if that's not what's going on, (laughs) I don't know what is. Uh, It never ends, Jason. You know, this week I was noticing they were running old Rolling Stones concerts and that one from I think it was 67 or 68 called The Circus. It's just that, isn't it? It's The Circus Maximus. When you go back and look at these things now, it's painful to watch the programming, the just kind of sidelining of a generation that's going on. And they're actually naming it Circus, which, of course, echoes back to the idea of Rome, you know, give them their bread and their entertainment to control them. And, of course, they did that in the Circus Maximus. Um, these things never end. And uh, to top it off, I had gotten an email not too, too long ago. I couldn't dig it up before this episode. Um, I couldn't find it, but it was a curriculum for people, I think, back in the 30s or 40s, showing just how much further down the road a grade school child was, and even included topics, I think it was Latin and Greek, that the average high school student will never see anymore. And already the mathematical level was way above what even a lot of high school people get these days. And that's grade school, man. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. All right. So for what may have been many thousands of years before even the advent of agriculture, Humans are thought to have lived as hunter-gatherers, predominantly roaming about the lands in loose tribes. Anthropological evidence suggests that children in hunter-gatherer cultures learned what they would have needed to know to become effective adults through play and exploration on their own. It is thought that adults in hunter-gatherer cultures would have allowed children plenty of freedom to play and explore on their own because they recognize that those activities are children's natural ways of learning. You know, Jason, if there ever truly was a time like this in our world, um, I've said it so many times on this show, uh, nature tells you no lie. When you go out into the world and you learn something watching a tree or a bird or any other thing, there is no lie in it. So a human being learning in this way, uh, in, in my view, it is the highest of value, probably understanding things about the sky that we have long since lost and any number of things that drive our natural world, which, of course, in the modern age is quickly being replaced by the tech, you know, the technology of our age. Um, even the way we keep time now is such an artificial concept construct, which you and I have covered at length. Anyhow, man. Well, I would suggest that this early time, and it probably did exist because there seems to be scientific evidence for it uh, as, as much as we can trust the establishment to, to tell us. But before humans started gathering into towns and cities and all that, I would assume humans did indeed roam about in tribes. And this would have been the time for however long it lasted and however long ago it was, that humanity would have been the closest with nature before they started dividing themselves off and making barriers and all that sort of thing to cut themselves off from nature. 
Well, it's a, it's a critical thing. Everybody in the modern age so easily forgets that we are born into a, what's called the natural world. We're all born naked into this system. And then immediately in the modern age, we are separated from any natural understanding at all. For the most part, there are still people all over this world um, that have a much closer tie to nature, but it leads to things that are not helpful, even the way the environment gets trashed. A community in touch with nature would never trash or stand for the trashing of environmental resources or water or any number of things, but yeah. So the invention of agriculture changed early humanity's lifestyle immensely. The hunter-gatherer way of life would have been skill-intensive and knowledge-intensive, but not necessarily labor-intensive in the more modern sense. To be effective hunters and gatherers, early humans would have had to acquire a vast knowledge of the plants and animals on which they depended and of the environments within which they would be foraging. They would also have had to develop great necessary skills to create the tools of hunting and gathering. They would have had to be creative and spontaneous, but not necessarily have to put in long work days. That would come to be with the advent of farm life. Agriculture allowed humanity to produce more food, which in turn gave them the capability to have more children. Agriculture also brought about a more stationary lifestyle, and humans would have begun to live in permanent dwellings, where their crops would be planted as opposed to living a nomadic lifestyle, and this in turn created the notion of humans accumulating property. These changes were a stark contrast to the earlier times. While hunter-gatherers would have harvested only what nature had provided for them, farmers now had to plow, plant, and cultivate their crops on top of taking care of any animals they would also have been keeping. Successful farming required many long hours, day after day, of relatively unskilled and quite repetitive labor, much of which could be done by a family's children. With the larger families that came about, children had to work in the fields to help feed their younger siblings or would possibly work at home to help in the care of the family's overall needs. Children's lives changed gradually from the freedom to roam in nature to more and more time spent at work that was required to serve the family unit. In other words, the idea of setting aside childish things at a much younger age than it ever happens uh, seems to be the case. Although I have issue with with some of these ideas, Uh, part of it is based on my own life experience. All the way back in the late 60s and 70s, here where I'm living now, we would go down to the water and we could live easily. It took no work at all to acquire enough things to eat to survive. We would live on the beach quite often. Uh, We built forts down there, had no need to go home for long periods of time. And as I've mentioned before, it was a different age and the you know parents weren't so concerned uh, because it was considered that the kids had more ability than they do these days. I think that's maybe the main takeaway from this bullet point. But again, Jason, some, you know, so often when we read in the textbooks what happened a million years ago or even a thousand years ago, I, when I start to pull it apart, I have to have issue. But I think for me, um, the, the main things that matter here is what I just pointed out. And I would further say if, you know, if there was such a time like this, Consider how much more abundant foodstuffs would have been. If I compare the 60s and the 70s down at the water uh, and the open ocean where I am now to now, you got to work a lot harder um, to get the food uh, if you're going to eat fish and produce things from the sea in this way, um, simply because there's just not as much of it. And this has to do with trashing the environment, overfishing, all kinds of things like this. But anyhow, man. And God forbid if you don't have a license. 
Well, I've seen people go to court recently for getting nailed without a fishing license and saying, I'm the living man. You have no reason to tell me anything because I have the right to forage for food and win the case uh, in this way. People can go look up these clips on YouTube. This is true. And I really think people should be doing more of that. So do I. And I think we're going to see it, um, although uh, with the crackdowns everywhere on how we can access information and what's allowed to be served out, uh, it's tough to tell which way it's going. Although uh, it does feel to me like people have made headway pushing back against the more, more blatant forms of uh, of censorship. But the problem here is, is so much of it is going on behind the scenes that people just simply are not aware of. And you and I demonstrate that every week when we go try to access valid knowledge to put together a show that matters. Um, it is damn difficult these days. And half the time I walk away from the internet altogether or use places that I won't even mention here um, because I don't want them screwed with. Anyhow, man. Agriculture and the concept of land ownership and the accumulation of material wealth also created the concept of status differences. One of the big points in this regard would be that anyone who did not own land would become dependent on someone who did. Landowners would come to discover that they could increase their own wealth by getting other people to work on their land for them. This would lead to systems of slavery and other forms of indentured servitude. Those with wealth could become even wealthier from the physical labor of others who needed them for basic survival. Thus, we have the setup to what would become modern society. And it's a hell of a thing, too. You know, anyone can go look up supposed, you know, uh, indigenous peoples where they were making the argument as the European nations were taking everything over that you can't own the land. The land is not a thing that can belong to you. And yet, um, in places like Europe, we saw where uh, the special families had massive tracts of land and you could be put to death for what they called poaching, which was basically people trying to subsist and get food for themselves. So you can really see where this goes. Uh, once these ideas were implemented, it literally became whoever could grab the most resources the quickest uh, was going to be head and shoulders above the game and begin to take advantage of everyone else around them. So that little setup and back history is to get us now into what was being done to teach people. The modern Western form of teaching is by teaching children to accept without any questions or doubts allowed to believe in, memorize, and regurgitate facts and information. There is no longer any education on how to have deductive reasoning. It is all about order-taking and being a dedicated follower, knowing enough to work in society, and badly most of the time, but never being taught how to rise above the general malaise of it all. This is not learning. This is not learning. Memorization and regurgitation is not learning, and although it was difficult to score a good definition of the trivium and quadrivium, I'm going to go over it for people who are interested. You can still get your hands on versions of these older ways of learning that are intricately tied to nature and the ability of the human mind. The trivium was usually offered first, and you know the word try implies three. Um, it was claimed to be a division of what was then called the seven liberal arts and Prized of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Now that flies in the face of what Jason just said. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Logic being the key there. Then after that, the quadrivium 
would, would be offered. And of course, quad tends to mean four. And it was said to be the four subjects or arts taught after teaching the quadrivium. And the word is Latin, meaning four ways. And basically what was on offer there was arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. But when you get into the quadrivium, you will see there are all kinds of interesting things that would take a young mind and relate it to the natural world. Even creating, I forgot what the machines are called, but those machines where vibration draws almost like a spirograph pattern. I'm sure I'm going to get a million posts um, in, in the forum telling me what that is. It's just slipping my mind right now. But these kinds of things, pulling a young mind into true learning uh, more, more closely tied to nature. But anyhow, Jason, I wanted to get that in in case people are interested in looking in to the trivium and quadrivium and beginning to understand how far away we have come from actual learning. Bipolar opposites, absolutely. Scary, man. The academic form of education that most resembles that of today originated with the Greek philosopher Plato. He founded a form of education of regular curriculum in a fixed location that he called the Academy. Multiple schools would then crop up around the Roman Empire based on Plato's original design. You know, this is a crazy thing because there was a period of time in education where the classics, what was called the classics, were always referenced. But back then, when true higher-minded education was going on, it was assumed that the only way to read those classics was in Greek or in Latin. And generations as recent as my parents actually had Greek and Latin in their school. A lot of people who got who I know now that are in their upper 70s who had Catholic upbringing, uh, upbringings in places like Puerto Rico speak minimally three languages, two of those being Greek and Latin, and speaking them pretty darn fluently, I might add. And when we get up into the modern age, these ideas are not only gone and by the wayside, they've intentionally been killed. You're told all the time that Latin is a dead language. That's why it's not taught. Latin is not a dead language. Go to any scientific naming of anything and what's being applied, Latin. If you want to take apart anything from back in the day, not being able to deal with Latin is a huge roadblock. So I wanted to get that in, Jason. I couldn't tell you what's going on in today's schools, but when I was in middle school, it was eighth grade, I was in the advanced programs, three languages were offered, Spanish, French, and Latin. I think when I was in San Diego, um, it was French, which was almost nobody took it, and I think it fell away pretty quickly. It was mostly Spanish because of San Diego's proximity to Mexico. Clearly, Spanish would be more handy. Here on the East Coast, the, the three that I remember were French, Portuguese, and uh, and Spanish. And But by the time I was even in school, I think you were required to have two semesters, and then at some point it, it went down to one semester. Um, clearly not enough time for anyone to really grasp a language. And not only that, by the time you're in high school, you're getting older. A person who is in grade school being exposed to new language is going to soak it up like a sponge so much more quickly and efficiently than a person who's already getting towards 18 years old. Now, what's interesting is European folks, because of the closer proximity of all the countries, countries that are quite different from each other, a lot of those people can speak multiple languages from early on just because of that. And that's something you don't see in America, obviously, because even though the states are sometimes quite large and kind of like their own little countries, we all, despite having uh, different funny accents, it's the same language. 
Over there, they have to communicate with each other, especially if you're traveling a lot. So you, you'll have people being able to, maybe not perfectly fluently, but certainly be able to comprehend and communicate in multiple languages. And it is such an advantage. Any individual who can speak more than one language has a real advantage in the way they can think about things and the way they can look at the world. As an example, having grown up in San Diego most of my life, um, I was exposed to Spanish all the time. And while I don't speak it very well, when I see it written, I can take most of it apart. And that opened the door for Portuguese and to some degree Italian. Um, I haven't kept these skills up, but when I sit down, uh, I, it is always evident to me that had I learned more languages at a young age, it really would have opened up some real doors for knowing. And as you and I are aware, Jason, the person who helps us get the transcripts out speaks numbers of languages, and we see directly how that lifts a mind. Right. She is quite capable as far as languages go. And uh, it's interesting because she will literally go look at other websites and things that other folks would disregard just because of her capability of language. It's so handy to know a person like this, and it makes you so aware of your inability to deal with it. When I was going through the alchemical texts, how many of them were in Italian? And not only are they in Italian, there's all kinds of scripty things going on and, and symbolic things going on. So um, having resources like that or other people who can help you try to deal with them, it's a big deal. And, you know, there's going to come a time here when we get up into the really modern, modern times when everything that happened is short short a time back as maybe a hundred years ago, these things are going to get more difficult all the time for the modern mind to deal with. Even, you know, we'll probably end up talking about this, the idea of a person 20 years from now being able to read cursive writing. But go ahead, man. All textbooks or early learning material would have been pagan-oriented and made entirely by hand one at a time. So anyone educated at any of these early schools would have received a pagan education even far into what is accepted as the Christian era. So let's address this bigoted word right off the bat. Uh, it was put in place and used as a derisive term. Uh, if you were pagan, you were not Christian, or you were not modern, or you were not any of these things. It was derisive. And it's too bad, because the word pagan simply means a person who dwelt in the country. That's what it means. And it goes to show you how organized religions did everything they could to pull people away from natural ideas that they, they could observe in this world. And and replace them with whatever it was they wanted to replace it with. But to make it very, very clear, the word pagan means a person who dwelt in the country, and it is basically referring to a person who understood nature because that's how they live. Absolutely correct, because as we're going to see here, the religion took over a lot of the schooling. Almost all of it. As a matter of fact, they took over uh, large segments of knowledge everywhere in this world to the point where we're told there was a period of time when people couldn't read. And of course, they, they had a special language called Latin, which only the upper crust could read. And that was just methods of control. But anyhow, go ahead, man. The barbaric invasions of the later Roman periods would have destroyed all these early schools. This continued any education at all being of pagan origin. It is easy to see how pagan customs became merged with any early Christian notions as we still see in use today. 
So typically I have problems with descriptions of periods of time like this because, first of all, we don't know when this period of time was. But in a bullet point like this, we can attribute it to things we can look at in the modern age and thereby confirm that it certainly happened. Let's take the aboriginal communities of Australia, maybe some of the oldest lineages and cultures we can look at in this world. Hard to know, but it is certainly possible. Look what happened when the Europeans got there, how they began to just take apart wholesale that culture that had been tied for Lord knows how long to the land, understanding all these important aspects of what it is to be a human being in a natural world, even to the point where they tried to decimate the language, which they often did, forcing them to learn English and outlawing the native languages. And as I have said in many of these episodes, you want to learn something of value, find an Aboriginal person who grew up in an Aboriginal, true Aboriginal culture, they can tell you things you can't look up in a book, and they're critically important. Now, of course, I'm going to start mentioning dates and time periods more often from this point on, and all we have to work with is the mainstream history. As anyone who's been listening to this program knows, of course, we're challenging that, but I have to work with what we've got. So I'm not trying to go against what we say here. It just is what it is. It becomes a basis for conversation, and I think we've said enough times over the 100 episodes we've done that history is, in fact, a lie agreed upon, and it probably goes way beyond just the timeline, which we have challenged and demonstrated to my satisfaction, does not fit the narrative. But anyhow, let's keep pushing here, man. By the time of the 6th century, the only true schools being constructed would have been of Catholic design. Monastic schools for the training of monks, and cathedral schools for the training of priests. Eventually, these would become the universities of Salerno, Bologna, Reggio, Padua, Modena, and Vercelli, with others following. You know, what's interesting about this, Jason, is when you track the supposed path of alchemy, which is the ultimate science tied to nature, we'll do nothing without being in step with nature. What we were told is that it came out of Egypt, went over into the Arab nations, and from there made its way westward. First, I believe, or the oldest texts I have read claim that alchemy made it into the Spanish universities. So at this time that you're identifying here, there still would have been a bit of a crossover and i suspect the reason for it is is that the people at the top never lost the information um, that was offered in things like alchemy or the natural ways that are critically important to our world and then started to teach the lower castes of society something else altogether and before long the lower caste didn't even have a basis to learn the other information because they didn't know enough and they didn't speak the right languages And that's exactly why I went through that back history that even though it didn't sound like much, I was pointing out the fact that certain steps in what was probably the history of humanity, whenever it actually took place, set up this division in our society with a very small elite on top, a sort of engineering, smarter class underneath, and then the rest just being a massive group of ding-dongs that they don't want to have any form of critical thinking capabilities to do the majority of the grunt work. Well, not only that, Jason, they they did some really what I consider to be some of the most insidious damage to the human mind doing things like don't look at the sky, don't pay attention to the sky, the sun is evil, the sky is evil, all these kinds of ideas. You're going to burn in hell. Um, also a push to just absolutely 
pull people away from the culture that once all people lived in where they knew things about our natural environment. And it's uh, it's just it's ridiculous on the face of it. Why not point to a tree and say, hey, man, if you look at that tree, that's evil or that mountain over there. If you walk on that mountain, that's evil. It's just the wholesale controlling of, of human thought processes and the lowering of human abilities. The first university to have a similarity to any modern place of higher learning was the University of Paris. Paris, by the way, used to be called Paris. Mainstream history has its beginning around 1150, with it being officially chartered by King Philip II in 1200 and recognized by the Catholic Church in 1215 by Pope Innocent III. So as we get along here, it's critical to understand that we are told that Hermeticism and alchemy uh, made it into this period of France in a big, big way, and it was a big deal to the royal courts and the upper crust of society here. Uh, problem is, that big deal was maintained within those circles and apparently not really very available to anyone who wasn't a muckety-muck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. English students attending the University of Paris would go on to found Oxford University, no exact dates are given for its founding, but the years 1167 to 68 are cited as times of learning in that area. Students from Oxford would then go on to found Cambridge. Graduates from these universities would found Harvard in the American colonies in 1636, William and Mary in 1639, Yale in 1701, and Princeton in 1746. And, you know, for anyone listening, it's pretty obvious as time goes on, the people who run the show here almost certainly went to one of these universities back in the day in this country anyhow. Um, but look at even the naming of Paris, Paraisis. This is just references to the older natural systems. People can't recognize it anymore because they're being fear-porned with ISIS being this organization or that bomb or this other nonsense. Um, this is the same thing the church did back in the day. It's just ways to obscure words that related to a natural system that is critically important to the lives of all human beings and the cycles which we have to go through here on this world, just turning it into fear and then over time changing the meaning altogether. Um, the name of Paris is a good example of that. And go ahead, Jason. And let's think about that for a moment in reference to what I said at the beginning of spewing nonsense all over the internet when you go to look something up. Right. A few years ago, if you Googled ISIS, you would find an Egyptian goddess. Now, if you Google ISIS, you're going to find a whole bunch of crap about a make-believe terrorist organization created by the CIA. And what's really ironic about it is if you go back to the oldest text, what you'll find is the idea of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. They're aspects of nature. It's what they are. Um, you know, everyone's been fooled into this idea of gods and goddesses and all this other stuff. When you get beyond the fluff and the obfuscation and the kind of perversion of information, you find that what they were doing is giving human beings a way to schematize all the influences of, of nature, thereby providing a path for higher-minded people to really achieve, basically. As society and industry along with it progressed over the centuries, systems became more automated and the use of such a horrid thing as child labor would begin to decline in Western countries. The idea seemed to spread that childhood should be a time for learning and schools would become more numerous. The idea and implementation of universal and compulsory public education developed gradually in Europe from the early 16th century on into the 19th and passed on to the fledgling United States. 
It was an idea that had many supporters in various tiers of society who all would certainly have had their own agendas concerning the information that children should be learning. Well, you can take this apart just by examining the world we have today. Um, the richest among us do not go to the learning facilities that the poorest among us go to, point blank. Um, and even if you get up into the middle classes, they are not going to Princeton. And what you see now in the United States is, guess what's happened over the last maybe eight years? All these made-up online universities. You don't have to go to a university to learn now. You can lay in your bed in your slippers and go to Grand Canyon University or any number of these things. You can see the slow creep of information control and the lowering. Is there anyone listening that thinks they're going to go get an online education from Grand Canyon University that even approaches what someone going to Harvard or Princeton will be exposed to? Just saying. The reason why I put all the university stuff in there is because what do we see happening? Let's just take Yale, for instance, as we did an episode completely on. They have a secret society called Skull and Bones. Right. And what happens with the members of Skull and Bones? Well, it's a little internal good old boy club of who gets into major places in society. So you can see where that division is quite apparent. Quite a control mechanism when you point to where all the CEOs that matter and all the people in high politics uh, come from, you will find that what I just stated a moment ago is absolutely true. These people are all going to Ivy League schools, and if they're not in an Ivy League school here, they're over at Cambridge or Oxford uh, in Europe. They're going to the best universities they are, and that is a far cry from the online university that is being pushed into style now. A lot of the pushing for universal schooling came, interestingly enough, from the ever-growing Protestant religions as opposed to the domineering Catholic Church. Martin Luther declared that salvation depends on an individual's own reading of the scriptures. Of course, this meant that anyone adhering to this concept would have to be able to read and write for themselves to learn the truths of the scriptures. The Protestant leaders of the Reformation era promoted public education as a Christian duty, this duty being to save souls from eternal damnation in hell. By the end of the 17th century, Germany was the leader in the development of schooling and had laws in most of its states that required that children attend school. It was the Lutheran Church, however, and not the state, that ran the schools and dictated what was taught. So little difference, and I have real problems with the historical accounts of Martin Luther, which I'll set aside here. Um, but what do we see? We see the fear porn. You're going to burn in hell. Um, so what the Catholics were pushing, so what the Protestants were going to come push. Fear porn is not learning, period. Um, and by the time we start talking about Germany, anyone in the modern era can look around and understand it's where we get words like kindergarten. Um, so intimately tied to the lowest levels of education as a child starts the path. In the United States by the 17th century, Massachusetts would become the first American colony to mandate schooling with the clearly stated purpose to turn children into good Puritans. Beginning in the year 1690, children in Massachusetts and nearby colonies learned to read from the New England Primer, also known as the Little Bible of New England. This included a set of short rhymes to help children learn the alphabet, beginning with, In Adam's fall, we sinned all, and ending with, Zacchaeus he did climb the tree, his lord to see. The primer also included the Lord's Prayer, 
the Creed, the Ten Commandments, and various lessons designed to instill in children a fear of the Christian God, as well as a sense of duty to their elders. You know, it's a bit ironic. What you're pointing out here is that organized religion in one way, shape, or form was basically controlling almost all education in all of the most civilized places in the world. It's a bit ironic living in Rhode Island because what we're told was is the, the colony in Rhode Island was founded because they wanted religious freedom. Um, they wanted to get away from, I guess they would call this nonsense in this bullet point, and they came and founded Rhode Island based on religious freedoms, among other things. But when you really begin to look at what you put down in this bullet point, what's truly ironic is these people were using religion as the basis for their schooling, and they were using the Bible, but nobody, but nobody was what being taught, for the most part, as far as I can tell, what was encoded in that actual text. I mean, the true meaning, the true valuable meaning, they were getting the surface narrative. Well, I might suggest that what they were doing was taking the control mechanism that was pounded into them in England and then bringing it to the colonies and just continuing it from that point onward. Yeah, from my point of view, it's it's a good historical view into what I call fear porn. Um, it is such a, an effective way to control people. Um, oh, something blew up today. Oh, people got killed today. Oh, you'll burn in hell today. Um, all these ideas just bringing fear to bear in an effort to control the human mind. Um, and clearly sometime around the new millennium, excuse me, new millennium uh, in the Western world, anyhow, the human mind began to lift and we began to start to try to see fear porn in our rear view. We're not there. We got a long way to go, but at least people are beginning to recognize it for what it is. Well, I would suggest that it's social engineering on the entire communities using fear porn as the hammer to drive home the points. Right, but there's this insidious truth about fear porn. Um, the higher human mind can't be swayed by fear porn because it sees it for what it is. And this whole lowering of the educational standard uh, plays into this idea in spades. Whereas maybe there was a time not too, too long ago where kids in grade school were actually way more educated than the kids would be later coming out of high school. Those would truly be higher minds. And I'm not suggesting that it's the education. It's the idea that the human Human mind is being truly taught to think and learn, not regurgitate, not memorize, but learn. And when you get to be an adult, you start to inherit your higher mind and things like fear porn become questionable. Well, wait a minute. Why should I accept that? Um, these kinds of ideas. But there's no walking away from it. Uh, this, this idea of fear has been one of the main tools in the tool bag uh, to control populations as far back as we can see. Religion was about it in one way, shape or form. And now in the modern age, media is about it. Well, the one thing I would say that the institutes of higher learning for the more elite of society would have something along the lines of discussion and debate to stimulate the mind, which is probably pretty absent these days in any common core school. Of course it is, and it's a far cry from what actually happens. We've pointed out that in this country there's one main place that puts out the polls you see on the news. You can have a poll created within 24 hours that goes any which way you want it, and the, it's done by the same place, so there's your conflict of interest. You can pay for the outcome, so there's another conflict of interest. But on top of it, the way that it is delivered by this same place, hint, 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 fashioning all these polls all over the place, is it is often – used to scare people into submission in this way. Well, a new poll was taken today and 80% of Americans believe this. 
So it sets up a situation that we've all been programmed into where now I have to decide, am I really willing to go against 80% of America? Well, here's the problem. First of all, the polls made up out of thin air. And secondarily, the way these are delivered on the tail of the current programming of the time, it puts a person in a position where they feel like they shouldn't stand up to go against 80%, even if they don't agree with it. And again, this is just, in a way, another shape of fear porn molded and crafted and delivered in a different way. At this point, it may be safe to say that industrial leaders may have seen schooling as a way to create better workers for themselves. To this end, the most important lessons and directives were punctuality, following directions, tolerance for long hours of boring and tedious work, and with all likelihood, only a minimal ability to read and to write. Nations would also capitalize on enforced schooling, instilling in children the concepts of being good little citizens who may go on to be even better soldiers. Basically put, children would learn whatever it was that the controllers of their time thought they should. You know, it's ironic when you take apart the word citizen. In many ways, logically, you can work out that once you become a citizen, in many ways, you've just become a slave. You are now subject to an endless line of rules, so many rules and laws that you can't even keep track of them all. Nobody can. That's ludicrous on the face of it. But now you need a license. Now you can be pulled over. Now you can be arrested. Now you got to pay your taxes. Now you've got to go into the military when there's a draft. These things are all riding on the back of what's called citizenship, and anyone can look Look at this idea supposedly back to ancient Rome if there was such a time. And it's often touted that the, the reason Rome was so great is they didn't just go in and kill everyone and say, now we own you. They always provided a path to citizenship, so we're told. But it's a bit ironic when you're a slave and then you're allowed to become a citizen, which just basically makes you different, subject to a whole different set of rules which are prescribed by people who do not live like you and who seemingly uh, live in a bubble far above the average person. Repetition and memorization of lessons is incredibly boring and tedious work for children whose natural desires are to run free and explore the world in their own way. Since it is very unlikely that children did not adapt very easily or happily to laboring in fields and in filthy, dangerous factories, until properly beaten into submission, of course, they never seemed to adapt to schooling either. The notion that a child's own desires had any value was, and still is, to nearly all, quite meaningless. Punishments of all sorts, some quite harsh, were completely accepted as a normal part of the daily educational process. In some schools, children were permitted certain periods of play, called recess, to allow them to burn off some of their adolescent energy. Play, however, is never considered to be a learning device. In the classroom, forced attentiveness and dull repetition is the name of the game. It's a heck of a bullet point here, Jason. What kind of a world would it be if a young child had input into what their interests are, um, into what the skill sets they may have inherited through the simple act of birth might be? I would be an entirely different world, I would suggest. Um, and I think that's critically kind of the underlying takeaway from this bullet point, apart from the idea that getting out into the natural world is also a form of learning for the young mind. But think about it, you know, so many children who go into school are absolutely for to do any number of things that they're, they have no predilection for or no interest in. And on the face of it, it tells you what value these things will probably be in the life of that individual. Now, a little back history on Prussia. 
In 1819, in Prussia, the first compulsory schooling for children was instituted. According to educator John Taylor Gatto, society in Prussia was divided into children who will become policymakers, children who will become assistants to policymakers, who would be the engineers, architects, lawyers, and doctors, and the children who will be the vast, massed, used. Prussia sets up a three-tier school system in which one half of one percent of the population is taught to think. They go to school called academy. Five and a half percent of the population go to Realschulen, where they partially learn to think, but not completely, because Prussia believed their defeat at the hands of Napoleon was caused by people thinking for themselves at times of stress on the battlefield. They were going to see to it that scientifically this couldn't happen. The lowest 94% went to Volkschulen, where they were to learn harmony, obedience, freedom from stressful thinking, and how to follow orders. They worked out a system that would, in fact, guarantee such results. In the Volkschulen, it was to divide whole ideas, which really simultaneously participate in math, science, social thinking, language, and art, into subjects which hardly had existed before, to divide the subjects further into units. To divide the time into small enough units of time, with enough variations in the course of a day, no one would know what was going on. So, Jason, you know, if that is an accurate accounting of some period of time in this world, it's a hell of a thing.、Um, it basically demonstrates some of the things we're pointing out here、um, by design, by very critical, cold calculating design. I might add. Anyhow, carry on, man. Let's talk about Horace Mann, who lived from May fourth, seventeen ninety-six. To August second, eighteen fifty-nine, he was an American educational reformer and Whig politician, dedicated to promoting public education. A central theme of his life was: it is the law of our nature to desire happiness. This law is not local, but universal; not temporary, but eternal. It is not a law to be proved by exceptions, for it knows no exception. He served in the Massachusetts State Legislature from 1827 to 1837. In 1848, after public service as Secretary of the Massachusetts State Board of Education, Mann was elected to the United States House of Representatives from 1848 to 1853. From September 1852 to his death, he served as President of Antioch College. Man, there is no understating the kind of influence the state of Massachusetts has had on our country.、Um, and actually,、uh, if I'm not mistaken, the slogan for the state has something to do with the heart or the spirit of America. In other words, claiming that in some way, shape, or form, Massachusetts is the heart or the spirit of America. And I would submit that. Of all the states you can look at, I would imagine Massachusetts has had as much impact early on as any other thing you can point at,、um, and that absolutely is going to reflect with education too, including the early universities that came to be in this country. Go ahead, man. Now, why did I bring up Mr. Mann? Because in 1843, Horace Mann traveled to Germany to investigate how the educational process worked. Upon his return to the United States, he lobbied heavily to have the Prussian model, which we just discussed, adopted. Mann's proposal became popular in the Whig Party, and in 1852, Governor Edward Everett of Massachusetts instituted a mandatory education bill based on the Prussian system. New York State quickly followed after, and the system then spread all around the country. This is where kindergarten comes from. 
So there it is, man. Uh, you just outlined the Prussian model, which stated outright what its intention was, how society was segmented down with one half of 1% being the special people who are going to run the show. And then this was adopted over in the United States by Horace Mann. Um, I will state to the end of my days um, that what we currently get for most young people in this country is not learning. It is not learning. Learning is not memorization. It is not regurgitation. What they get in school teaches them to be programmable so that when the nightly news comes on with its fear porn, you are so programmed you cannot see the trees through the forest. Those individuals who still have the higher ability in the human mind to actually think, reason, and basically understand things, they're going to be a thing of the past here soon if something is not changed. The school that these children are going to provides them no outlet to understand how to challenge the realities that are being placed before us. From 1776 through much of the 19th century, American education was decentralized, entrepreneurial, and driven by the demands of individual parents and local communities, not school districts or states. This, of course, began to change in the mid-19th century when American academics became enamored with Prussian schools, as we were just discussing. Prussia, a modern-day Sparta, organized for constant warfare, purposefully designed its school system to create obedient soldiers, workers, and civil servants, which was then implemented in the young United States. Welcome to civilization. What more do we need to say? Do you want to be a citizen? Do you want to be civilized? Here's the ticket. So, Jason, that brings us close to the top of hour one. Why don't you do a quick rundown on the things we'll be covering in the second hour over at Crow777Radio.com. So what we're going to see is, as the 20th century dawns here, how this system was really put heavily into place. Mandatory schooling with, I don't want to say harsh circumstances, but definitely very determined to mold the minds of children to be what the state wanted. And all the way up into the modern era with the horror that is Common Core. So all you people out there who go out in a day, I get so many emails where all your families and friends around you just can't seem to understand what you're laying down. You want to know why? Well, come join us at hour two and look at what we've laid down here in hour one. This is why. Because of mental programming and the retardation of the facility of a human mind to actually think and learn on its own, uh, a mind that has been retarded in these ways finds it hard to challenge what is put before it and simply becomes a member of the herd. These are critical things to understand in the times we exist in. So many people have children out there, and yet all those children will be in your home, go to school, come to your home again. All that home time is an opportunity to nourish a young mind to actually learn. Look at the quadrivium. Look at the trivium. Look at the things we're laying down here and understand that nowhere, nearly, it's not wholly true, but almost nowhere is the human intellect for learning, true learning being nourished here. But anyhow, that brings our one to a close for episode 100. Here we are, man, 100. I hope everyone will join us over at Crow777Radio.com to support free speech where we cover the things that are no longer allowed to happen on this platform or many others. At the posting of this episode, there will be 100 free hours of content that require no login at Crow777Radio.com. If you choose to become a member, you are in fact supporting free speech. And let me tell you something, there are getting fewer and fewer places all the time where you can openly exercise free speech without some penalty imposed. There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.